Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. So, experience His love. Become the love of God by experiencing the love of God. Amen? Amen. So Jesus, I pray as we continue to worship, I pray that people would, would forget any of the intensity and passion of, of Zach. It would fall to the ground like dust. But Holy Spirit, if you spoke to anyone, as they can pursue freedom, they can experience more of your love to be poured out, to love others, to become love in action. Would you produce fruit in this room, in these souls, these minds, and these hearts? We pray specifically for the seniors that as they prepare to go, that they would be filled with the love of God so they can pour out the love of God. Jesus, do a new thing in our midst. Revive us by your love. And we all said, amen. That is speaker Zach Meerkrebs speaking at a chapel service February 8th at Asbury University of Wilmore, Kentucky. After the chapel service concluded, students kept going for almost two weeks of nonstop worship services. Why did it happen? And, well, what was going on there? Was this the typical revival that we're used to seeing in, say, charismatic or Pentecostal circles? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about the Asbury University revival, Lyman Stone. He's a former Methodist, a Ph.D. candidate in population dynamics at McGill University. He's a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies and author of a column for the Issues Etc. journal titled Wittenberg Trail, From Despair to the Real Presence of God. Lyman, welcome back. It's always good to be with you all. Ordinarily, we uh, have you on to talk about your area of expertise in demographics. Why are we talking to you about the Asbury University revival? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. No, there's nothing demographically interesting about it, but it's because um, I'm from Wilmore, where this revival is happening, and I have a long and intimate family connection to Asbury. My, my dad is professor of Old Testament at Asbury Seminary. My grandpa was a student there during the 1950 revival, and then he was professor of evangelism there during the 1970 revival. You know, he's brought his wheelchair in to pray over the crowd at this revival. He's just glad he lived to, to see another one. He's well into his 90s now, and virtually my entire social circle is uh, Asbury people. Half my groomsmen were, were Asbury alum. So I'm in the strange position of probably being one of a, a small set of, of Lutherans who has a really deep set of ties to this kind of holiness Wesleyan tradition, but also speaks that language, so to speak, um, and then also is a Lutheran. So hopefully I can help people understand the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of what's going on uh, at Asbury. I have not seen much in the media coverage as to how this current revival began. Do we know? Yeah, it's actually, um, you can actually watch it online. You can watch it start. And it's really boring because what's going on here is that Asbury is a very conservative Wesleyan university. Students are required to attend a certain number of chapels each semester, which 
I don't think any of our Concordias require that actually. And as a result, chapels are very heavily attended by students. There's three chapels a week. It's a church service. Someone preaches, there's singing. And a guy preached and you can listen to a sermon. It's it's a fine sermon. It's, it's not an ideal sermon from a Lutheran perspective in terms of law and the gospel, but it's nothing terrible about it. It's not like a peak of eloquence or emotionalism or anything like that either. But at the end of it, there was a small group of students who just felt led to pray for one another, to linger and pray for one another. And they did so. And then word kind of started spreading on the campus that people were staying in the chapel auditorium praying for each other and more people kept coming. And so for the first several days of this thing, it was really students and faculty and immediate community. And the town of Wilmore is a little less than 7,000 people. And half that population is either Asbury students or Asbury College and Seminary or the family of students, or employees of the universities, or their families. So half the town is basically this community. And so word spread pretty quickly of this student revival, so to speak. That word is sort of a a contested designation. And then it it kind of grew from there, and gradually people were like, well, maybe we should have some music. (laughs) Maybe if if it keeps going on, maybe we should have somebody else come in and do some preaching, or maybe we should if after this prayer and intercession, people are feeling led to to do so, maybe we should have some kind of public confession or, or testimony giving, right? So then it, it kind of grew organically from there. And then after a day or two, the university kind of stepped in to do more logistics and organizing to make sure this uh, was all in good order. Yeah, it began very quietly. And honestly, until it became a national media phenomenon, it continued very quietly. The reason I say it's contested calling it a revival is because when people think of a revival, they think of stuff like the Toronto blessing, right? Or like uh, the Azusa Street revival, this like crazy thing with all these wild things happening. And that's not really what's happening at Asbury. Uh, Yeah, it, it began just with some students who really felt a burden to pray for one another. And so as it's continued, the defining features of this revival have really been singing together and then also prayer and intercession for one another. Do you think the media understand what was happening at Asbury? No, they have no idea what's going on. And you can see this in a lot of ways. First of all, a lot of the coverage of it has not even mentioned that this is not the first time this has happened here. 1905, 1950, 1970, 1973, now 2023, there's a few others in there that are less well known, but this this is a thing that has happened before in this community. There's some experience of it. There are people in this, I mean, I mentioned my grandpa. There are a lot of people in this community who remember past things like this, Um, which is to say, it's not like people in this community are just head over heels, have no idea what's going on, swept up in the mystery of God and just it's chaos. That's not what's happening. The people in this community have a pretty clear sense of what they believe is happening. They have an account of what they think is happening and they, they believe they know how to manage it in good order. Now I'm saying they believe because obviously some of these things will be contested, but it's important to understand that this is not just like something that no one has ever experienced before. I mean, if you're 25 years old, you've never experienced it before, but in, in Wilmore, in this community, I mean, there's a lot of people who saw this happening and they said, Oh, that's great. It's happening again. I'm so glad for, you know, that this is happening again. It's a special moment, but it's not a unique moment. And that I think is something that the media has really gotten wrong is this idea that this is a totally unique thing that no one has an explanation for. When there's actually some very clear accounts of this being offered, particularly if you listen to like a lot of the seminary faculty who are trying to kind of do the work of 
giving a, a cogent public account of what's going on. A lot of them have been very forthright about this. And then beyond that, of course, the media just doesn't understand Christianity to begin with. So they, the media desperately wants to find, you know, signs and wonders and miracles, and they want to find as many crazy people as they can, which is difficult at this, at this event, because that's not really the culture of Wilmore or Asbury. So as a former Methodist with some very deep roots in this theology, how would you describe what's happening at Asbury? So the term everybody uses is this revival, right? But if you actually look at like Asbury's website, their description of it, they call it an outpouring. And the reason is they don't like the term revival because it sounds like you're saying that what came before was dead. And nobody at Asbury or Wilmore is ever going to concede that before February 8th, faith on that campus was dead. <laughs> That's not what anyone in that community thinks. So they call it an outpouring. Um, and what they believe is happening in sort of this Wesleyan holiness theology is that as God's people gather together, so to speak, where two or more are gathered, um, and as they intercede for each other and pray and sing and have this communal experience, that the Holy Spirit responds to that in a powerful way by coming among them. And it's not so much the Holy Spirit is physically in the air. If you listen to what they're saying, it is, they are arguing something like a real presence. They're arguing that this is a an extraordinary work where the Spirit is present in a way that is not the same as a regular Tuesday morning, so to speak. So that's what, what they think is happening. And so they believe what's happening is as they come together and sing, and when I say singing, it's important to keep in mind, like, they're singing very sedate music, right? There's no dry ice and laser lights. It's, it's not dim lighting. It's, it's, it's normal. This is not megachurch chic, okay? Some of it is contemporary music. Some of it is traditional Methodist hymnody. But this is not like your, your megachurch smells bells and all the whistles situation. This, this very kind of lo-fi worship. But they believe what's happening is, is as these things happen, that the Holy Spirit is coming among them and convicting hearts of sin and their need for the gospel. And then when that happens, people confess their sins, sometimes to each other. Sometimes they go up to the, the altar and they confess their sin to, you know, there's kind of a, a team up front doing prayer support. Um, and then, you know, if they feel so led and if the people who are kind of, we could say as Lutherans, the people who are kind of fencing the table, if they feel that this person is not crazy and, and reasonable and seems to have a sincere heart, then they might be invited to give their testimony on the mic to the room. And then as they do so, whoever is hearing the confession, which might just be your neighbor beside you, or it might be the whole congregation, tries to respond something like, you know, the blood of Christ covers your sins, or you are forgiven of this, or some confession of what we would recognize as gospel. But I do think it's important to emphasize that from our perspective, most of what's happening at this outpouring is law, right? It's people being convicted of sin, feeling an urge that they should live their life in a different manner, making public commitments to adjust their actions. And of course, the holiness tradition believes in something that we would call something like decision theology. And so they believe even that that if someone you know does receive baptism, that it's because they were convicted by the Spirit to choose to believe in Jesus. So to us, there, there's obviously for Lutherans, there's obviously a theological difference here that, that's very real. So I think there's the question of how people in the room would describe what's happening and then how we might understand what's happening. So how would you contrast this revival with 
other revivals that are rooted in Pentecostal and charismatic theology. Yeah, I think that's a really important one. And you see this, I mean, you know, you get on any of the like Lutheran Facebook groups or whatever, and you see people talking about this. And, and the big worry is the E word, enthusiasm, right? This, you know, looking for an inner light and, you know, the special revelation of God and, you know, your emotional feelings and all these things. I would draw a couple of really important contrasts. And one is an explicit difference of theology. The Wesleyan tradition does not endorse sort of the the signs and wonders, charismatic, uh, strong continuationism of gifts like tongues. So for example, there have been a couple moments in this event where people have started to very prominently speak in tongues, and they've been gently but firmly told that in this particular community, uh, the gift of tongues is not widely accepted, and practicing that gift in this setting will cause unnecessary division in the church. We're told not to cause division. And so you have the choice to either not worship in that way or to leave or to do so very, very quietly where it doesn't disturb anyone else. But there is an explicit difference of theology between the Wesleyan tradition and kind of your your Pentecostal tradition about particularly kind of this, this question of cessationism. Wesleyans might not be strict cessationalists, but they're they're not Pentecostal on this question. Second, there's a broader cultural difference. The defining feature of something like the Azusa Street revival is a kind of what Pentecostals would call a kind of holy chaos. That is that it's it's very freewheeling, everybody doing their own thing, not a lot of order or structure, and that is not what's happening at Asbury. One of the defining features from the very first day was that immediately the community was like organizing things. Like, okay, we're going to organize shifts for this and who's going to do this. It was very orderly. There hasn't been a time where it was just chaos. Throughout the whole thing, there have been people fencing the theological influence and leadership of the movement. And what I mean by that is there have been a lot of national evangelical celebrities, for good or ill, who have showed up at this revival, this outpouring, whatever you want to call it, and thought because they're a big deal, they're going to get invited to speak. Okay. And that has not happened. They're really trying to prevent the celebrities from taking over the stage, particularly celebrities who might be ethically or theologically dubious. I know a prominent one is Todd Bentley, this, you know, scandal implicated evangelical Pentecostal pastor, whatever. He very prominently said he was going to go to the revival and pray over people. And he came, but he like was never allowed to touch a microphone or anything like that. They basically said, if you want to come and repent of your sins, you're welcome to do so. But you're not going to have a leadership role. Even to the extent like my, my grandpa, who's, you know, kind of an elder statesman of the community, beloved, you know, they didn't ask him to get up and preach, right? They said, it's not really your place right now to do that. You can pray. We'll let you pray for the crowd. But, you know, it's not about bringing all your celebrities up on the stage and letting them show off. And so this is a big difference between kind of this style of quote unquote outpouring and what a lot of us envision for revivals, right? Which is that it's it's not a celebrity focus. It's not about just getting the most powerful evocative speakers to play on your heartstrings. It's really about prayer and intercession for one another, sharing in music and worship together, and then testimony in some humble and relatively normal and sedate preaching. Lyman Stone is our guest. We're talking about the Asbury University Revival He had mentioned previous revivals there at Asbury. Is there a connection between them? 
Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. This fall in creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Educating a new generation of Lutherans. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Your Aunt Mabel's church banners are from the 60s. They were quite something in the day, especially the psychedelic bell bottoms. But now the colours have faded, the tassels fell off years ago, and the hand-stitched letters are skew. Come on over to adcrucem.com and see our beautiful, theologically correct, Christ-focused church banners. We can customize size and color to meet your church's requirements. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're discussing the Asbury University Revival. Lyman Stone is our guest. I mean, you had mentioned the 1970s revival, 1950s, others as well. Do you think there is a connection between these revivals and the one today? Yeah, and there, there is. And I should say everyone in the community who's been around here for a long time believes that there is. So what is that connection? And I would argue that Wesleyans would offer one account of this, but I think as a Lutheran, we can actually offer a more compelling account of what's going on here. And that is, we do believe that the Holy Spirit works through the mutual conversation and consolation of believers. That's in the small call to articles of the gospel. So when believers pray for one another, when we you know share scripture with one another, with one another when we share the gospel with one another to encourage one another, this is one of the ways that the Holy Spirit does his work in our lives. It is. This is in our confessions. It's very clear. So it turns out that if you have a community of faithful believers, and of course, this is a pretty orthodox community. They believe in biblical inerrancy. They're Trinitarian. They have faith statements that ethically and morally, I think, there's not a lot of space between LCMS Lutherans and Asbury-style Wesleyans. When you have that kind of community, and you also have in that community a very strong cultural norm of intercession for one another— it means that these kinds of things do happen occasionally. Like when my wife and I felt called to go into the mission field to serve with Lutheran congregations in various places, we got so much support 
and benefit from Lutheran congregations that we visited. People prayed for us, people talked to us, people encouraged us, people, of course, you know, financially supported these things. And then when we went around kind of like my my growing up Wilmore community, we also got a support. And there was a, I would say, a physical difference in how the support happened. In a Lutheran church, it's almost funny how much people don't touch you. Right? Like, like I, I like to say that in a Lutheran church, a revival is when someone hugs someone else. But like we're just we're not like a touchy-feely people. I mean, that's like that's not a bad thing necessarily, but like when you get around like my my Wesleyan friends from growing up, like they want to get around you and like put hands on you and like individually take turns praying for you and encourage you. And I, I'm not saying that that's like better. It's, it's not better. It is different. And I do think there is, it's not so much that that prayer is like different, but it's that when you have a culture where everybody thinks it's really normal to pray fervently for one another in each other's presence to do so, but to lay hands on each other and do this, it creates a culture where these things kind of happen, where every generation or two, you get a lot of people who all at once kind of spontaneously start to do this together. And then it creates an environment where the Wesleyan view is in some sense, like they're all jointly calling down the spirit into the room. And I'm like, that's not theologically correct. But from a Lutheran perspective, you get an environment where everyone is really being strongly motivated to mutually converse and console one another with the gospel. And so I think that's what we're really seeing is just um, a set of social circumstances and disciplines and behaviors that, that lead to a community of believers really leaning into this mutual consolation in a way that is is very intense and unusual. So it's not an extraordinary work of the Spirit. It's a very ordinary work of the Spirit, exactly what we would see in any other case of this, but on a sort of extraordinary social scale. So talk about how revivals, or however we want to refer to them, are really an integral part of the history of Methodism and Wesleyan theology. Yeah, Methodism, this Methodism comes from the method, method. And the method of uh, spreading the gospel that, that John Wesley really talks about here is um, basically you you circuit as a pastor, you circuit ride and you you start basically Bible studies or, or scripture classes. Um, and then once you have a lot of classes going that have kind of built up a, a network of cells in an area, then you can plant a church, but often Methodism was growing in places where they actually already were churches. So what you really want to do is you want to inspire more zeal and energy in those churches. So you have a quote unquote revival, you know, you set up a physical and, and social space, maybe a large tent or something like that where you uh, get a lot of people together to try and inspire that zeal so that when they go back to their church, they propagate the gospel more effectively, right? So this is basically the method of Methodism. And so revivals are, are an integral part of that. In that kind of revival, I grew up around a lot of these going to them in the summer. There's pros and cons to it. On the one hand, it's kind of fun to have like Christian family camp each summer. Like that's fun. Lutherans do Christian family camp too. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a nice thing to do with your family. It's a good opportunity for some really intentional catechesis. But as a Lutheran now, I also look back and I kind of see like, I don't want to say the dark side of that, but kind of the weird side of it, which is like the idea that you think if you just get everybody together and set up the right set of social and physical circumstances that you can like snap your fingers and make revival happen. 
and again, it's kind of like decision theology, how you think you can just decide for Christ. It's like, I don't know that you can just like decide we're going to make this extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit happen. If you think it's really an extraordinary work, then you probably can't engineer it. And if you think that it's something that you can basically administer in a workaday fashion, it's not an extraordinary work. It's an ordinary work of the Holy Spirit. And you really need to bring it into, I think, the discipline of a church or validly ordained pastor who's accountable to a church community. You know, all, all these things I think Lutherans would categorize under good order. And so revivals are an important historic part of Methodism. And I think revivalism as kind of a set of ideas and practices is something that Lutherans have some good reasons to have a bit of skepticism towards. But I want to emphasize that kind of these like scheduled revivals are actually a very different beast than what we see at something like the Asbury outpouring. It's actually kind of a a different animal, even though um, a lot of Wesleyans would see them as intimately linked. I think from our perspective, we can argue that, that these are actually kind of different phenomena and they come with different possible spiritual fruit and then also possible risks. What is the holiness movement in Christianity? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of just a radical pietism, right? Lutherans are very familiar with pietism, with its flaws in particular, and the holiness movement basically is informed by a very simple question. Is this thing in your life conducive to your holiness? So, okay, drinking alcohol is not a sin, but somebody coming from this movement would say something like, okay, yeah, drinking alcohol is not a sin, and Jesus drank wine. We know that. But first of all, you're not Jesus. And second of all, for you personally, regardless of if Jesus drank alcohol, is drinking alcohol conducive to your holiness, to your growing in righteousness, obedience to the law, and participation in the work that God is doing, spreading the gospel? Does alcohol facilitate that? If the answer is no, maybe you shouldn't do it. How about dancing? Is dancing conducive to your holiness, or is it just you know a segue to temptation? And you can go on and on, dancing, playing cards, video games, uh, basically everything fun. <laughs> And so the reputation holiness people get is basically just like hating fun and very, very law. And you have to do all these things. It can become a really problematic thing. I want to be clear. Like I, I think Lutheranism and and the holiness movement are almost as diametrically opposed as you can imagine on kind of the question of the law and growing up. uh, I have to say the joke that holiness people tell about Lutherans is Lutherans who are Christians who are allowed to sin that like they see Lutherans as like, not taking the law very seriously as almost antinomian. And of course, that's an unfair characterization of us, but it is a, a very big difference. And I think that we have a very legitimate critique of looking at something like the Asbury outpouring and saying, look, you have like an hour of law so that you can have five seconds of gospel when everybody says, you know, the blood of Christ covers your sins. Like that's the wrong balance. Like, come on guys, at least get 50-50. <laughs> so that's the holiness movement is this movement that really was rejecting the dead lifelessness of kind of liberal Christianity as it was arising in the 1700s and 1800s and saying, um, look, we don't want any of this kind of, you know, liberal Christianity. That's just a little bit of cheerful platitudes and a little bit of advice for a happy life. We want something that's about radically calling you to a different kind of life in the gospel. And so that is what the holiness movement is, is coming out of. And it's a tradition I was raised in that, when you're in a community where a lot of people believe this very sincerely, the joy of the law is a beautiful thing to behold. You know, scripture talks a lot about the delight of the law. And I think that's sometimes a hard thing for Lutherans to 
mentally processed, particularly if you're influenced by like radical Lutheranism. And so there is beauty in the holiness tradition, but also there's some very real problems with that much emphasis on kind of a pietistic acquiescence to the law. Lyman Stone is our guest. We're talking about the Asbury University revival. Does the fact that the United Methodist Church is currently splitting up, does that provide any context for the revival? It's not about you. It's about Jesus for you. You're listening to Issues Etc. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the Asbury University revival. Lyman Stone is our guest. Lyman, it's no secret that the United Methodist Church is currently undergoing a split between conservatives and more progressive Methodists. Do you think that that provides some context for this revival? Yeah, it is and it isn't. Asbury is about as Methodist as most Concordias are Lutheran. That is to say, large shares of the student body have no attachment to Methodism. They might be theologically Wesleyan, but the student body is not strictly Wesleyan. I think it's probably in the back of the mind, particularly of a lot of the older people there. And Asbury, of course, is is not a United Methodist University formally. It's not formally tied to the denomination. And culturally, Asbury is a lot more closely tied to the conservative breakaways in Methodism. It has, a, it has a lot of connections to that. And increasingly, Asbury's beginning to have ties, particularly the seminary, to Anglicanism. So there is a context of people you know, seeing kind of a church heritage withering and dying in front of their eyes. And there's a lot of particularly older people wondering, like, what does this mean? And so I think it's been encouraging to a lot of the older people in Wilmore to see like, okay, whatever's happening with the United Methodism, it's just the denomination. Right? It's, it's just the institution. What we see among even young people is this efflorescence of desire for God and genuine faith. So it's encouraging, but I don't know that it's cause or anything like that. Do you think that the Asbury Revival is likely to spread to other Christian campuses? I don't think it's a question of if it's likely. It already has. I mean, it's pretty well documented that this stuff is now breaking out at a lot of campuses not just Christian ones, a lot of secular campuses, particularly around Kentucky and neighboring states. There's students coming to Asbury, participating in the, the outpouring for a few days and then going back and you know trying to bring it back. Now, there's a theological question of what that means. If people are just getting together and emulating, I mean, there's not really a worship style to emulate. Again, like the worship style is sort of, it's not like it's unique, okay? It's just kind of standard music with, you know, a college student band with people just singing. Like it's, it's not like there's some some distinctive style of worship happening in Hughes Auditorium. It's, it's very generic. So there's a question like, what are you spreading? So if what you're spreading is 
a powerful desire to gather together and pray for one another, wonderful. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'm very in favor of that. If what you think you're spreading is like some kind of magic spark that you picked up in Hughes Auditorium of Wilmore and you're going to carry it back and that spark is like a, a little nugget of Holy Spirit that's going to like spread like a virus. Well, that's probably not sound theology. And I think among college students in particular, you've got a lot of young people coming out of a whole range of faith traditions, figuring out what they believe, not totally sure of what they believe. And I think probably if you interview young people who are kind of bringing the revival to their campuses, you're going to find some people with, you know, a really sound and mature understanding of what's going on. And you're going to find other people who have a very strange, mystical, and magical view of what's going on. The reality is these are college students without a lot of theological education undertaking a very strange thing. And so I'm sure there's a whole range of things happening. But I think an interesting question to, to meditate on is... um what would it mean if it spread to us, right? What would it look like if the revival came to Lutheranism? And that's like, you know, kind of a, an exciting and a terrifying question, right? But I, I think that's, that's an interesting thing to contemplate. My big question, since this thing stretched on into more than a week, is how do you bring it to a close? How did those leading this revival bring it to an end? So they're already doing so. Asbury's already announced. I think the last open to the public services have already happened. And then they're even going to be closing the facilities for like student revival stuff later this week. And the reason is Wilmore, as I said, is a little bit less than 7,000 people, but they estimate that about 50,000 people, somewhere between 50 and 70,000 people have shown up for this event. And I got to be honest, there's only so many roads into Wilmore. And one of them involves literally driving through a creek to get in. And people can't get in and out. The state police have had to come in and shut down one of those roads just so emergency vehicles can get in and out, in and out if they need to. And so they've just got to the point where like the town's infrastructure cannot handle it. It cannot. And the crowds who come are very gracious, you know, very well-mannered. It's not like they're unruly and destructive, but it's just too many people. So they've already started bringing it to an end, limiting access to the spaces, putting caps on how many people, what age groups at what times, Local churches have started opening up their spaces for spillover, and the idea is to gradually move it out of the university into these spaces. But really, the truth is, the way they're bringing it to an end, that's administratively. But what they're really doing is they're trying to change it into sending. Um, they're saying, look, you people have come here because you thought you were going to get something remarkable at this revival. Well, we hope you did. We hope God really worked in your life. So what? And what they're really doing is they're trying to emphasize that you don't come to something like this because God does something magical here. And then you just go home and go back to your life. You should go back. My grandpa likes to preach a sermon about uh, when it says the Magi went back by another way and how, oh, you know, you encounter Christ and your, your life goes back changed by another way. Uh, it's a little bit corny, but I think it's true that what they're trying to tell people is you go back different. And what that difference should mean is your church should be benefiting. You should be going back to your church and being part of your church community, understand that your church is a revival every Sunday. And there's a very clear understanding of that at Asbury, that, that they don't want this to be an alternative to your regularly ordered life as a member of a congregation of God's people. It should be motivating you to go back and be part of that with greater fervency and love. 
So contrast how you understood revivals like this as a Methodist and how you see them now as a Lutheran. Yeah, I mean, some of this is is what I've talked about with the question of how the Spirit is working, right? So, so in the Wesleyan tradition, there really is kind of this view that like, the Holy Spirit is doing an extraordinary work, an unusual thing that this is, this isn't like your normal church service. It's something special that happens once in a generation. And as a Lutheran, like, no, it isn't. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say that that kind of extraordinary work will happen. It does not promise it. It does not say it. It is not there. Um, and secondly, there's a very clear ordinary work of the Spirit that actually seems to be doing the work, right? There's a lot of good preaching happening. There's a lot of reading of scripture. A lot of people are just standing up on stage and reading extended segments of scripture. Okay. Yes. God works in scripture. People are being validly baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is a means of grace that works, so to speak. God works in baptism. He creates faith in it. We can think about, I said, you know, the mutual conversation and consolation of the saints. When I look at these kinds of revivals now, I don't see this God is doing a new thing in our time. That kind of rhetoric, to me, first of all, it turns me off. Second of all, I get you know a little bit of alarm bells a lot about theological innovation and that sort of problem. And I, I think those are, I actually think this is one of the real blessings in Lutheranism is that we have, I would say we have the spiritual gift of vigilance, which is to say always being on alert for someone who's, even if they're not false teaching, that they're not quite true enough teaching, right? And I think that's that's a real blessing in our congregation that we have that disposition. And so I, I do look at it now and think, I'm glad to see so many people benefiting from the ordinary work of the Spirit in an extraordinary social gathering. And my prayer is that those people will go back and see how extraordinary it is that our God works in our lives through such ordinary means as water and your pastor talking and ink on a page and bread and wine, or if you're a Methodist, grape juice. <laughs> but secondly, I actually do hope that when I look at a revival like this, I don't want Lutherans to be like, oh, poor us with our boring churches. No, that's totally the wrong thing to think. I think we should think what would happen in our own churches if we got to the end of the service and someone said, a couple of us are going to linger to pray for one another. Would that be a violation of good order? <laughs> would it be terrible for people to pray for each other instead of go and, and mingle with coffee hour and have excessively strong coffee? Would that be such a bad thing? If we gathered at one another's houses for a meal and then someone said, why don't we sing some hymns afterwards? Would that be so bad? I think that would be wonderful. In fact, I would argue, I think I've been to Lutheran revivals and they usually come in the form of some Lutheran family inviting a lot of friends to their house, Lutheran, non-Lutheran, but Christian, non-Christian, whatever, and having a meal and then singing and praising God together and using our powerful hymnody that teaches well and that orients our emotional lives towards the things of God. And it does so in a way that uses each of our voices to give spiritual consolation to one another. I think that's a revival. It's not a substitute for what happens at church. It can never be. But I think that we can take inspiration and encouragement. We don't have to think, well, you know, unless we have, you know, bright lights and dry ice and the most emotional preaching, we'll never have those things. No, it's normal preaching with kind of boring worship that's leading people to feel inspired to pray for one another. It's not the production value. 
And I think that if we believe that our hymnody is what we say it is, if we believe what we do believe about prayer, about the means of grace, I think that a Lutheran outpouring, again, I don't like saying revival because our faith isn't dead to begin with. Um, a Lutheran outpouring is, is not a crazy thing to desire, although, of course, it would look quite different. Lyman Stone is a former Methodist, a PhD candidate in population dynamics at McGill University, research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies and author of a column for the Issues Etc. journal, Wittenberg Trail from Despair to the Real Presence of God. You can read about Lyman's journey from Methodism to Lutheranism at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Lyman, thanks. Thank you. Lyman mentioned the great hymnody of the Lutheran Reformation. Well, that's the subject of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Eternal Anthems, The Story Behind Your Favorite Hymns, Volume 2. You'll find this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and ask for Eternal Anthems, The Story Behind Your Favorite Hymns, Volume 2, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss media coverage of Southern Baptist ousting Rick Warren's Saddleback Church, for naming a female pastor. Our guest will be Terry Mattingly. We'll discuss finding a therapist with Dr. Rick Mars, and we'll look forward to the first Sunday in Lent, according to the one-year lectionary with Pastor Peter Bender. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.